Uh, Well, we are continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount this morning. So if you have a Bible, um, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, and we'll go ahead and get started. You'll remember from a few weeks ago uh, that Jesus starts his Sermon on the Mount or his uh, kingdom talk on a hill by explaining that his disciples from all sorts of backgrounds uh, and, and seemingly disadvantaged positions are now entering the kingdom of heaven. Because the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this reality. And so those who find themselves unexpectedly blessed through what we call uh, the Beatitudes are now welcomed into God's treasured community where Jesus is the the anchor, the center, the focal point uh, of our life and our community together. And, And as that focal point, he has actually fulfilled everything that Israel and in fact everything that humanity was intended to be. And so because the center of our community has, has, has attained that fulfillment and, and we now curiously find ourselves in Jesus and him in us, uh, we're sort of caught up in that fulfillment that Jesus is talking about. Not through the following of laws governing external actions, but through the remaking of the human heart at the deepest level by Jesus himself. And when this um, rebirth happens, Jesus says, you will operate in the kingdom of God in the fullness of the spirit of God, and you will embody an inner righteousness that surpasses the external righteousness displayed by that of the Pharisees or sort of the modern um, Bible teachers of Jesus' day. And so what follows um, that statement about righteousness is six different contrasting statements showing kind of the old external way of viewing righteousness and um, Jesus' picture of the renewed kingdom heart. And he's going to put those side by side through a variety of very real human spheres. We pick up in verse 27. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. All right, time for another light teaching topic, right? Last week was murder, anger, and contempt. Um, This week is uh, lust and adultery. I hope you'll join us next week for divorce. (laughs) So in a few short statements, Jesus has given us uh, a lot to think about. Uh, As a brief aside, we're kind of um, brushing over or setting aside the topic of hell this week. Uh, And it was also touched on last week with Jesus' words on um, murder. Uh, We're not really going to get into that today because our hope is on a future Sunday within the Matthew series to really take that topic head on and explore it as a community. Uh, But today, even with that sort of on the back burner... 
Jesus has given us a lot to think about. And in order to uh, unpack accurately the words that Jesus is speaking, we have to place these things in context. Uh, first, we have to recognize that Jesus, all of this is happening within Jesus' talk about the inbreaking, bless you, uh, the inbreaking uh, kingdom of God. Uh, and, but we also have to remember that Jesus isn't speaking in a vacuum. He's not like dropping little bits, uh, little tidbits of advice uh, on, on sexuality uh, w- with no context. He, he's actually speaking um, with, within the framework of this looming giant backdrop uh, that his audience would have understood about God's vision uh, for sex and intimacy and marriage and all of that. And so unless we understand the bigger picture that Jesus is speaking into, then the words that he's speaking to us today won't really make sense. They won't come to life in the way that Jesus intended. And in order to understand that vision and Jesus' sort of theology on sex and marriage and intimacy and all of that, we actually have to go back to the beginning, to chapters 1 and 2 in the very opening pages of the scriptures. And Jesus um, doesn't spell out his entire sexual ethic right here in these verses, but as you read through the gospel accounts, every time that Jesus is asked about sex or marriage or intimacy or any of that, he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. So this is where Jesus sort of developed his theology from. And if you um, go back to that account, in the opening pages of the scriptures, it says this. It says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we see that the men and women were uh, created unique and separate, um, but also equal and designed to equally embody the image of God and reflect that image into the visible world. And immediately what God does is, is he takes uh, the man and the woman and he gives them to one another in what we would describe as the first marriage. And, and then they're placed in this garden of delight. And the scriptures say uh, that they were both naked and they felt no shame. And then God gives humanity its first command. The very first thing he tells them, he blesses them and he says, be fruitful and multiply. Go for it. Literally. Enjoy one another, come together in love and attraction and intimacy and and pleasure and all of it. Your bodies were literally designed to come together, but so were your hearts and your minds and your souls. Come together in in this marriage covenant relationship in love and out of that love it is going to flow new life and new people and new families and new communities and the story will continue. Deep at the core of humanity, God wired the sexual impulse. It, it compels us toward one another. It compels us toward sex and intimacy as a means of solidifying marriage and creating new life in the form of children. And, and that actually involves pleasure. And, and, and God designed it that way. 
We, we don't really talk about this much, but God actually designed sexual pleasure. God actually designed the orgasm. That, those were God's inventions. He isn't down on sex. There is an entire book of the Bible that would have been read in synagogues every year that is cover to cover about romantic love and sexuality. And we get um, this story of a couple coming together in passion and intimacy and pursuing one another and, in, and joining together ultimately in marriage. And then after the marriage ceremony, kind of opening up full throttle, experiencing all of their sexuality. And, and when you read through the book, it's, it's passionate and it's vivid and it's honest. And, and by the time you actually decode the poetic language that they're speaking in, it, it kind of makes you blush. The, the, the Bible doesn't pull any punches when it comes to sexuality. All of that's in the Bible. And so what Jesus is saying is that this covenant relationship that, that represents the pinnacle of sexual experience and satisfaction is so holy, is so central to human flourishing, so sacred that any threat to its sanctity becomes a serious one. Any, any alternative becomes a distortion of what it means to be a human made in God's image. So Jesus said, and God had said in the past, as a basic rule, don't end up in bed with someone you aren't in this covenant relationship with. That's a fracturing of God's design. And for all of human history, as far back as, as we can record and see, um, people have general, generally agreed that adultery or sexual intimacy outside of marriage is a bad thing and a destructive thing. In, until now, sort of. And now we're getting into this kind of strange territory um, within the sort of American cultural narrative in our modern day where they say, hey, my version of freedom is all about my pleasure and what's going to bring me happiness and whatever I want to do is best. So, so we're now actually coming into this sort of strange um, place as a culture where even the command don't commit adultery, e even that is under fire. Well, what about... You know, what about this and what about that? And what about if it's going to be the best thing for me? And no, the scriptures are crystal clear that we are not to commit adultery. This is actually reflective of the heart of God. But notice that the more and more we lose sight of God's compelling vision for sex and intimacy and marriage, as soon as we lose sight of what God intended, we instantly question the command or throw it out altogether. If we don't understand what God is trying to usher us into and, and shepherd us toward, then, then there's not a chance that, that we're going to be on board with actually protecting that vision if we don't understand it. Follower of Jesus or not, you're not even going to be compelled to want to follow God in that way if you don't see where it's headed. So it's important that we get God's um, version of marriage and sex and intimacy and all of these things that he actually created and created to be really good. And the way that he created it is to be this stunning, beautiful, deeply satisfying uh, endeavor in a way that the culture's version of, of, of sexuality will never, 
ever satisfy. Okay, and so in order to protect God's vision for sexuality, um, we shouldn't sleep with someone outside of our covenant relationship, right? But Jesus is, is saying in a sense, hey, let's stop for a second and think about how that happens. How does someone wake up next to another person who's not their spouse? Oh, well, I was at a bar and she came. No, 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 no. Jesus is saying, not, not those details. I mean, how, where, where does that begin? It doesn't actually begin that night. The path to that place usually begins days, weeks, years, or even decades earlier in your heart and in your mind. So Jesus is saying, hey, let's, let's take this thing and let's trace it back to the source. If you remember the iceberg analogy from um, last week, uh, we talked about the heart being the bedrock, which then leads to your emotions and impulses, which eventually breaks through the surface into the physical, visible world. And, and Jesus is saying that y- y- what's happening is that the, these in, th- this whole journey starts with your eyes and your heart. And something is conceived in your heart, which then rises up in your imagination and creates these emotions and impulses and desires which then, uh, by the time you conceive all of those and dwell on those and live in, the, in that lustful movie that your mind generates in, in, in those emotions and impulses, well, at that point, y- your desire, your strongest desire, your dream is that all of that would actually move into physical, visible reality. And at that point, Jesus says, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You have all of the necessary elements for adultery to occur. All you lack is opportunity, which usually means no one will find out. And and as soon as you have that, then all of the dreams and desires that you've cultivated in your head, well, of course, they're going to break out into outward action. But if you interpret the letter of the law, you're only going to think about outward action. Jesus comes along and he says, you're already a thief. You're just waiting for your chance to steal. You're already a murderer. You're just waiting for that chance to pull the trigger. You're already an adulterer. You're just waiting for the stars to align and for the door to open. And so it's into that world that Jesus says, hey, don't even look lustfully at a woman. We're going to trace this back to the source, back to the eyes, back to the heart, to the place that everything is born out of. Let's change that. Let's erase our lustful desires at the the bedrock level of who you are. And if you do that, if you allow God into that place, then adultery is going to be a million miles away because that's where it starts. And what Jesus means um, by lust is not that you shouldn't be attracted to someone or or that you shouldn't notice other people and say that that's an attractive person at at sort of a gut level instinct. Um, For you to notice someone is in your nature. You were wired that way by God. So that's not a bad thing or a good thing. It just, it just is. That's how you were made. 
But what you do in the seconds following that reaction becomes your choice. What do you do as that person walks by? What what happens in your mind? What happens in your heart? Because there are different words in English and in Hebrew for the word look. And so what Jesus What he's not saying is, hey, don't see that person or don't notice that person. What he's saying is, in in essence, don't stare. That that prolonged, intentional look. And And to really unpack that a little bit further, what Jesus is saying is don't stare in order to or for the purpose of stirring up those lustful fantasies, in order to generate that movie in your mind, in order to imagine what that person would look like without their clothes on, and then what they would feel like, and and then what it would be like to be with them in some sort of intimate sexual act. That's what Jesus is getting after. It's all about where where you take that image. What's going on in your imagination? Do you see the difference between the two? Martin Luther, in a rather famous quote, said it this way. He said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You can keep them from landing and and pecking off your nose and settling in and putting down toxic roots. And if you let it, Lust will peck off your nose, so to speak. It it will consume you. It has the power to destroy you. Pornography, which is um, the viewing of images and videos for the purpose of, in order to, lust, is a multi-billion dollar industry Uh, Not to mention the other billions and trillions of dollars worth of products and movies that we sell with the platform of sex in this country and around the world. Countless billions. Something unparalleled in, in the history of the human race. We have created a system that traps and degrades hundreds of millions of us on the producing end and on the receiving end. And, and it's staggering how, how much this has infiltrated our culture. And it's in our romantic comedies and in our novels and in our mainstream Hollywood movies. And of course, in, in the standalone porn industry, all of it, it's, we're, we're inundated. You can't check out at the supermarket without being exposed to, hey, look at this, lust after this, seek this, buy this. It's everywhere. Many of us were um, exposed to a lot of this stuff at a very young age, uh, to the point where um, we still don't understand the full effects uh, of everything that we've been exposed to. Uh, And they've even attempted to do studies on this. Hey, what's the effect of all this stuff that we've been inundated with? And several university studies that have been attempted have failed because they couldn't find a control group. Meaning we cannot find a male who has not viewed porn. We cannot find a female who hasn't been exposed, whatever it is. We have no control group to compare it to because everybody has been exposed. 
and in trying to understand, we're, we're just coming to grips with what that means, to be exposed from age seven, age eight, age nine, for decades, and then what it does to your brain, and, and the, chem, the real physical chemicals that are released in your brain as you engage in those activities, and the oxytocin and this, and, and the chemicals that are released are the equivalent of, of, of being on an actual drug. And you wonder why we get trapped in this stuff. We get stuck in this stuff for decades. It's as powerful, as addictive as any other drug. And, and governments are starting to catch on. They're actually starting to see the effects. If you, if you are sexually addicted for long enough, you become so numb that you actually can't be aroused anymore. And so now we have people who are um, entering into marriage and they can't make love to their spouse which is God's original intended design, the place where you were designed to find satisfaction. And it's right there in front of them. And it's inaccessible because of what's happened in, in their heart and their mind. And people are starting to catch on to this and actually state and local governments are beginning to declare exposure to porn a public health crisis. And you have all of these um, guys, both genders, but guys especially coming forward and saying, yeah, we'll sign the petition. Yeah, we need to outlaw that. This stuff destroyed me. It has the power to do that. It's as dangerous and consuming as any other drug. And so what looks like freedom to the culture is actually slavery. And Jesus comes along and he says, hey, I want my brothers and sisters, I want sons and daughters of the living God to be the most free people on the planet. So, so you have to let go of this. You, you have to let God into the deep places of your heart. You have to let him into your life. As a, as a brand new Christian, um, I was a freshman in college at, at the dorms in the University of Washington, and I gave my life to Jesus, but um, I'd never owned a Bible before. So somebody like in the Bible study or whatever gave me a Bible and said, oh, start reading the New Testament. So I, I was in this place of like, hey, I'm like a follower of Jesus now, but I don't actually know what, like that much about Jesus or like what he said or anything. So I'm like reading through the book of Matthew and I'll never forget being in my dorm room and, and reading through, okay, Jesus is born. And, and I distinctly remember reading these verses that we just read. And, and they jumped off the page and they slammed me in the face. And, and in that moment, there was this beautiful kind of mix of emotions and there was conviction because at this point I was realizing, oh, oh my gosh, like I've, I've had 19 years up to this point to freely cultivate lustful thoughts. And I, ha I didn't even know that was wrong. I didn't know there was anything wrong with that. And, and by that time, those, those habits and those ways of viewing the opposite gender are, are deeply ingrained. And so in that moment, there was this mix of emotions of, of conviction and, and, oh my gosh, like, Jesus, is that even possible for me to change? I, how, do, how do I change the way that I think and have been thinking? And, and that was on one hand, but on the other hand, th there was this, there was this beautiful this sense of like joy and excitement that the Bible, I, Jesus actually has something to say about the way that I live. He actually has a way to guide us into ways of greater and greater light. And I said, Jesus, I don't even know if this is possible, but I want that. I, I, I want that life. I want the life that you offer.
And so what started in that moment um, was kind of a journey for me of weeks and months and really years uh, of inviting God into those places and, and repenting and bringing it before God and before others and, and reading the scriptures and actually giving them the space and power and authority to shape my life and to shape my thoughts. And, and at, as I was doing that, it wasn't easy But over time, it began to take root. And over time, it actually threw the door open for incredible intimacy with God and for the renewal and restoration that God wanted and for the the restoration of of, of innocence and actually being able to see the opposite gender in a a new and and beautiful way. And it threw the door open for me to enter a Jesus-centered marriage with with my wife where we, f- we follow after him and actually enjoy openly the sexual satisfaction that God designed, honestly, and that I never could have found in my old way of thinking and my old way of operating. And threw the door open for all of that stuff that I didn't even know was there. In our ignorance, we claim that the scriptures have a low view of sex. It's dirty, it's wrong, don't do it. Save it for the one you love, however that reconciles. But I promise you that no one has a higher view of sex and the body than Jesus in the scriptures. In fact, no one has a higher view of humanity than Jesus and the scriptures. If you go around the world to all the different cultures and subcultures and you ask this question, what are human beings? You're going to get all sorts of answers. We're kind of randomly assorted atoms and molecules and strands of DNA that developed over time that were born out of a vacuum in a self-created universe. Oh, well, we're, we're, we're slaves to the gods of the pantheon. Oh, we're, we're these tortured uh, animals striving toward nirvana, striving to break out of cycles of reincarnation. What, what are human beings? Are we any of those things? Or are we divine image bearers? created to rule and reign in in beautiful, loving communion with the creator God uh, in perfect relationship with him and with one another, bringing this world into a place of beauty and flourishing and balance as God intended. No other worldview that I know comes close to placing that sort of value and identity on human beings. This is stunning. And here's the deal. Life in the kingdom recognizes um, not only God's stunning view of sex and marriage, it actually recognizes that God has a stunning vision and purpose for humanity and lust threatens both of those things. When you lust after someone, as we've defined it, as this intentional movie that you generate, you are making a direct statement about what you believe their purpose is. Here you are fueling this sexual desire at someone against their will or even with their will, even if it's invited, 
And, and what you're saying as you do that is other people exist for my pleasure. Life is about me. It's about my pleasure and my pain and my story. And you have a role to play in my story and in my pleasure. But it's a very limited role. In fact, that's the only value you have. That's the only role that you have to play. That's the theological statement that you're making about someone as you do that. So when we ask, hey, what, what's the purpose of humanity? I, I'm not asking you what, what you would write on a theology test. I'm asking you, hey, what, what, what does your heart say? What does your mind say? What, what does your life say? Our church is, is largely um, young and unmarried people. So I'll speak to you guys for a second. If you are a follower of Jesus, please do not date someone who isn't. Please do not marry someone who isn't. Because they don't believe the same things about Jesus that you do. And as a result, they will not believe the same things about you that you do. And they will not believe the same things about pleasure and pain and sacrifice and marriage and sex and intimacy that you do. Chances are they're going to run around like I have for, for most of my life up to this point, assuming that this story is about me and my pleasure and pain and what I can get out of life, not what I can give. And Jesus says, when you encounter me, the real me, as I actually exist, you are ushered into the kingdom of God. By grace alone, you are ushered in and you enter a new world in which everything in the outside and outward displays of righteousness and unrighteousness uh, comes into harmony with God. But so does everything inside at the deepest level of who you are. The internal world is being set right. And as a result, of your internal and external worlds being transformed and set right again, our relationships come back into harmony. Our relationship with God and our relationship with others. That's the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Every single week in this series is going to be about relationship. All of it, start to finish. That's what Jesus is after. Reconciliation, restored relationships with God and others and that neighbor who, who drives you to want to murder someone and, and that girl at the gym who, who's incredibly underclothed. And she said, I want you to be in right relationship with all of these people, complete and holistic restoration. Everything in the life of discipleship can be boiled down to this. Love God and love others. As we wake up in the morning, go about our day, that's the only thing we need to think about. Love God, love others. And if we're confused as to what that means, here's your answer. It, it actually has something to do with, with this. By lusting after someone, you are fracturing relationship with them and, and you are fracturing relationship with God as you do it. You're making a false claim about why that person exists. What is their purpose? Lust in that process, it, it dehumanizes you and it dehumanizes the other person. They are reduced down to body parts or, or an object to be dominated or, or some piece of your self-centered story. Love, on the other hand, 
elevates others. It says that their well-being is as important or more important than mine. And so in humility, I'm going to love them and I'm going to serve them. And you can't have both at once. On the other hand, if you let the fire of sexual lust break loose and consume your mind, it turns us into animals. And we know this. I don't even need to say it out loud, but we turn into absolute animals and we're impulsive and we degrade each other and we take advantage of each other and all of that vision God had is fractured. And it goes both ways, right? Men and women. The stats on pornography and lustful sexual thinking and all of that are far less one-sided than, than is typically presented. Typically, this is a very male-dominated, male-centered conversation. And the truth is it goes both ways. So ladies, if you're struggling with that type of stuff, the very last thing we want you to believe is that you're alone in that. Far from it. This is a universal struggle for human beings. Um, and... and but you'll notice uh, that as Jesus addresses his disciples, which were both men and women, we learn from different sources, a, a large number of female disciples, maybe for the first time in history, side by side with male disciples. And he's speaking to both of them in his talk on the hill. And yet, he addresses the men, which is a little strange, right? Like, Jesus, you know we all struggle with this, right? Like, you know all of your female disciples. Like, why, why just the men? And Jesus is saying, oh, okay, yes, I, I get that, that we all struggle. But there's something else going on here. Because in the history of the human race, one gender has consistently turned lustful thoughts into a tool of violence, subjugation, and oppression of the other gender. And I don't need to say which gender that is. It, it, it's not even close. It's so one-sided. And so maybe we all struggle with the movie, but one gender has taken things in a particularly destructive direction. And so as Jesus launches his new society, his new kingdom culture, which collectively will be the light of the world, he challenges men specifically to make the kingdom culture a place that is safe for women. Where once again, just as in Genesis, they're seen as equals, not to be subjugated for, for your desire, not to be subjected to the stare but as equals in the kingdom. It has to be this way. There is no other way to create a genuine kingdom culture as God intended. That's the heart behind the Sermon on the Mount. Restored, reconciled relationship, light of the world. So as we close, um, what do we do next? How do we conceptualize um, Jesus' words on this subject? How do we move forward under Jesus' teaching and live this out as we move out of these doors? Well, I'll start with this. We cannot afford to view what Jesus said as a new law given for us to follow. That is not the heart behind what Jesus is doing. Oh, the old law was hard. Don't commit adultery. Here's a harder one. How about you do this? 
We cannot view his word. The second we do that, we fall into the same trap that the Pharisees were stuck in. If you turn this into a law that you cannot look at a woman or a person uh, that you're attracted to with the purpose of lusting or, or carrying out these fantasizing thoughts or even carrying out adultery, then you could accomplish this command in all sorts of hollow ways that completely bypass renewed heart and reconciled relationship. If my only goal is to fulfill the letter of the law, then I could achieve it by forcing women to cover themselves from head to toe. I I could achieve the letter of the law by withdrawing into an all-male society and never seeing another woman again. I could achieve it by training myself to view women as disgusting and repulsive so that I would never want to lust after a woman. I could achieve it, as Jesus says, this way. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Sounds pretty straightforward. All reasonable alternatives to lust. So for our response time at the end, we'll have a prayer team along the wall over here where you're welcome to come and confess. And after you've confessed uh, your sin, we're going to have spoons and saws in the back. Uh, And so you can go and visit our surgical team, and they would love to take care of you back there. (laughs) And it sounds ridiculous. There's not really a surgical team. People are looking to the back like, who's back there with a saw? That's weird. Uh, I kid you not, there have been professing Christians who say that this is to be taken literally. I mean, can you imagine? Okay, hold on, Karshi. Gonna feel a little pinch. But let me ask you this. Would covering the opposite gender or withdrawing into a one-gendered society or training myself to hate the opposite gender or gouging out my eyes and cutting off my hands, would any of that actually bring me into a place of restoration and restored relationship with the people around me? Not a chance. Would any of that actually transform my heart? No. And, and that's what Jesus is after. I, I used to be a lawyer, and as part of training for being a lawyer, I could argue just about anything. If you pay me enough, I will argue your case for you, right? No one can argue that case, that, that any of those alternative methods are actually going to transform your heart, are actually going to lead to reconciled relationship. Don't you? That's actually the point that Jesus is trying to make. I mean, if self-mutilation were actually the solution to this problem, if cutting off body parts was truly the way forward, then I hate to say it, but he recommended the wrong body parts. And I know that sounds crass, but I'm dead serious. If that were actually the way forward, but it's not. That's not the way forward. All of this junk, whether it's contempt and the impulse to murder or lust and the impulse toward adultery, whatever it is, it's all coming out of your heart, Jesus says. 
Think about your, all of that stuff is only a symptom of a deeper issue that I want to get out of. And when your heart is fully transformed and flooded with the grace and the love of God, there's not going to be room for all of that other stuff. They can't coexist side by side in the same moment. So Jesus is saying, how about we let that other one go? This is about restoring fractured relationships between people and God and between God and people, between you and your neighbor and the girl at the gym and everybody else that you encounter. And the only way that happens is when our hearts are truly transformed by God himself. The heart is the real issue. And by the letter of the law, you could pluck out your eyes, Jesus is saying. That's what the Pharisees would do by the letter of the law. Because if I pluck out my eyes, I can't see a woman at all. So how am I going to look lustfully at her? And if I start chopping off all of my limbs by the letter of the law, it's going to be really, really difficult for me to commit adultery. But as you dig deeper, for one, Jesus is saying, hey, this is actually a really serious issue. And and if that were the only way to enter the kingdom, it literally would be worth it. That's how amazing the future kingdom of God is going to be when it comes in. It would be that, it would be worth it. But when you dig a little deeper, what you see is that Jesus is actually saying the exact opposite of what we initially suspected. Don't cut off your body parts. That's what the Pharisees would do. And in fact, if you plucked out your eyes and cut off all of your limbs and and you rolled into the kingdom of heaven as a bloody stump of a person, guess what? Your heart could still be full of anger and contempt. And the heart inside that stump could still be full of all of the sin that Jesus was after in the first place. Don't cut off your body parts. Jesus is trying to illustrate that that actually wouldn't help at all. Self-mutilation could never bring you into the profound, beautiful, renewed place that God longs for you to be. And so he's created a new way forward. And as part of that new way forward, um, there's several pieces that, that we can pick up as followers of Jesus. And the first one is this. The first one is confession. In just a moment, uh, as we end, there, there actually will be a prayer team over here, and there actually will not be a surgical team in the back. Um, but for those who, if you feel it heavy on your heart, I mean, this is something that affects all of us. But if we're honest, all of us are affected and faced with that temptation. The temptation isn't sin. Jesus was faced with that temptation. But if we're honest, a, a lot of us um, succumb to that temptation, And the more often you do, the easier, the harder it is to resist. And so some of us uh, by now are crushed under the weight of it, shackled by it. It, it, You feel like I did. That's impossible to break out of those patterns. But there's something about it. There's some mystery surrounding confession that when you sit down with another human being and you say the words out loud, something happens. And I can't explain the mystery behind it, but, but whatever is dominating you begins to, to be broken. And, and you begin to, just by saying it out loud and having another person there that meets you with grace and truth and open arms and in all likelihood says, yeah, me, me too. Let's pray. And, and 
that is the first step to free. So whether it's here with the prayer team or with a spouse or with some friends that you trust or your missional community or whoever it is, if you're crushed under it, don't sit in shame. Don't feel like you're the only person in the room or in the world or in your missional community who's dealing with that. Share it to someone you trust, whether it's here or out there. Please enter freedom through that door. And second, you cultivate a new habit. Moment by moment, as the thoughts come, as the birds um, circle in, so to speak, in the language of scripture, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. So as a new discipline, as we go throughout our day, we recognize this. Every poisonous seed that lands and tries to take root, every bird that sets down and tries to net, right then, capture it, kill it, in in the vivid image of Jesus, kill it, cut it off, End it right there. Involve prayer in that moment. Involve the Holy Spirit in that moment. Involve Jesus in that moment. Bring your, bring your struggle and right in that moment, bring it face to face with God. And say, God, I feel weak right now. I want you to conquer this for me and, and through me. Right now, would you help me? And it's hard at first, um, but I promise you that this gets easier as you go. And it might involve outside groups, uh, specialty groups, and it might involve software on your devices, and it might involve some of these other things, but it should always involve confession, and it should always involve this taking up of a new discipline, cultivating a new thought, uh, and, and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit to change us. Christ has already accomplished our righteousness. So we're constantly receiving that, acknowledging that, allowing him to transform us. And in my journey toward freedom in the kingdom, I had to do all of those things. I I had to confess to people in my missional community and people that I trusted and ask for prayer. And um, I I had to um, come before God constantly with that and take every thought captive and cultivate a new habit. And I had to read the scriptures and allow them to shape me and capture those desires right as they were arising, attempt to capture them. And okay, I'm single and she's attractive, but I'm going to let that thought go. And I'm going to let that bird pass by and on to the next thought. And slowly over time, it could take years, but over time, God's going to lead you into greater and greater places of freedom. And every second of your struggle, every second of your resistance, every day of fighting the good fight is absolutely worth it because you're helping to usher in the kingdom of God. You're paving the way for increasing intimacy with God, and you're throwing the door wide open for a beautiful, Jesus-centered future marriage to another person. And and God's saying, I want more for you. I I want more for you in, in your singleness and in your celibacy. I want more for you in your current or your future marriage if you choose to marry. I want more for you in in your cycles of slavery and satisfaction. I want you to be free. And because the kingdom of God is now at hand, it's now available to you, it's now accessible to you, that freedom is closer than ever. Let's pray.